The Bolts and Pens couldn't avoid disaster, and both are now on the golf course. A few other teams also joined them. What happens to them, and how did their opponents get to round two? We'll debate and discuss in our main topic. Plus, the Red Wings have a new general manager, the Kings have a new coach, and the 67s are still rolling. Episode 168 is a lot more predictable than the NHL playoffs, and it starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Duboff. Before we go any further, we're going to delve into the Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? I am ready, yes. All right, question 55. Here it is. Who were the first inductees from the goaltending fraternity to enter the Hall of Fame in 1945? Uh and your options are A, Charlie Gardiner and George Vezina, B, George Vezina and Alex Connell, C, Alex Connell and George Hainsworth, or D, George Hainsworth and Charlie Gardiner. I never know these things. Um, <laughs> Neither of us were alive. Not yeah. even close to being alive. Uh, I don't think our parents were even alive. No, the they old, weren't even alive. Yeah. I feel like this is just because George Vezina, I know, is for the Vezina Trophy, so I'm going to go with him and Charles Connor, because that's the only name I remember from from what you said. Uh, uh, You mean uh, Charlie Gardner, right? Gardner, yeah, yeah. So Charlie Gardner and George Vezina is your guess, right? Yes. Well, that's the correct answer. There you Woo. go. All right. Sometimes it pays to guess, Brett. Totally. Doesn't always, yeah. but sometimes it does. I totally knew that. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, all right. Your uh, grandfather told you this story once upon a time. Yeah. I remember these two. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we're... Uh, so, a lot of stuff has happened since we last had an episode um or since last week um i'm not sure the bet i didn't i just put this in random order here um in terms of teams we're going to talk about but um i decided to put them in the all the series into three categories um or the teams i guess in three categories um so there's the advancements stuff which we'll just we'll get into the elimination stuff, which we'll also get into. Um, and then we'll talk about uh, all three Game 7s that are going to happen. Um, two of them are playing tonight. One um, will be playing tomorrow when you guys hear this. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's... Uh, let's start with the advancements here. So I, I put them in no particular order, um, but we're going to start with the Blues, um, and they advanced um, into the uh, second round. Um, this was an interesting t- type of series uh, where it felt like 
Um, especially in game, uh, what was it? Was it? I think game three, the Jets kind of like took over, and it felt like okay, so the Jets have it figured out. Um, and then the Jets won in overtime, um, in game four. Um, and you're like, okay, the Jets have their mojo. It seems like the Jets are going to take over the series. But then game five, which I felt like was the turning point of this whole thing, um, the Blues, um, actually the, the Blues, like, weren't playing that well, but they, um, there was a, a game-tying goal that happened um, where... Bufflin hit, I believe it was uh, Sunquist into the net, and then uh, that kind of like distracted Hellebuck, and um, Braden Shen uh, shoots it, um, or like the puck goes to where Braden Shen is, and he shoots it, um, and uh, he scores just before Sunquist messes up the pegging of the goal. Um, so that that was the I felt like that was the turning point, and then like just before it goes to overtime or it was going to go to overtime, uh, Jaden Schwartz um, scores with like 15 seconds left on um, in regulation, uh, which is crazy impressive. He's very underrated um, in in that sense and then in game six it just seemed like uh the jets were not good <laughs> um and the blues kind of just and Jane schwartz had a hat trick um he has forced i didn't even realize he had a hat trick until i'm looking at this recap here um so actually had a natural hat trick not yeah. just any hat trick a natural hat trick yeah um so it's worth uh talking about there but like at the same time like Jordan Bennington he only had 18 saves and so that means and the Jets only scored twice so that means the Jets had 20 shots uh the entire game so it's not like the Jets were giving in their entire a game during the series um so yeah the Blues uh kind of um they deserved to win this series. It seemed like the Jet, but it also seemed like the Jets were just fatigued all um, playoffs. And I think what really did it was that game five game um, game um, <laughs> it was game five, uh, yeah. where it seemed like they like they just lost in horrific fashion and they just couldn't come back from that. Yeah, and and this is a series where. It wasn't separated by very much. I mean, both teams got 16 goals apiece. A very tough series. The last seven or eight meetings, including the regular season, decided by a single goal. And and like you mentioned, in games three and four, it looked like Winnipeg was starting to get back on track. And in the final frame of game, of game five, you know, the Jets were up two to nothing. They were in good shape there as well. And in the third period, the Jets have struggled on and off this season. And... Once Braden Shen got that two to one goal and then the two two goal happened and then that fifteen second um goal by Jaden Schwartz uh took place, I think the blues really smelled blood after that. And in game six, like you said, they took no prisoners. Um Winnipeg only had six shots 
through 40 minutes, only mustered one in the second period alone. Um, I'll give credit to Winnipeg for pushing back, but that natural hat trick by Jaden Schwartz, that game winner um, in game five, like the Blues scored four straight goals off his stick. And when they weren't scoring, Jordan Bennington was making key saves. And as a team, I really thought at times they bent, but they certainly didn't break. Yeah. And they just really stuck to their game plan. They were persistent. And now they're into round two as a result. So full credit to St. Louis. They they really took it to Winnipeg. They showed no fear. They just kept battling. And um, they got rewarded. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So I guess they're going to be playing the Dallas Stars um, in the next round. The Blues, but yeah, no, uh, good. Uh, I'm just looking here at the Blues stats here. Uh, we mentioned Jaden Schwartz. I also wanted to mention Alex Petrangelo because he has six. Mm-hmm. He had six assists um, during this series um, um, in six games, and also Oscar Sundquist, uh, kind of like the unheralded hero in this uh, game uh, in this series. He had two goals and two assists. Um, and he was very much in play the entire time. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly also was very impressive with four. Uh, he also had two goals and two assists, um, four points in six games. So, um, yeah, it seems like the, all all of the Blues are kind of like trying to, are, you know, it, like at the beginning of the year, the Blues struggled to, to start, but then they started to um, actually play like a team, um, and Jordan Bennington was incredible as well. But um, yeah, it seems like they were able to uh, to beat this Winnipeg Jets team. Um, they were pretty; it was pretty even the entire time. I felt like um, this series. Uh, let's go to the Colorado Avalanche. Um, they this was one of those things where because. I mean, we'll talk about the Calgary Flames in a bit, but this entire series was basically um, because we all expected that, you know, Johnny Gaudreau, uh, Sean Monaghan, Matt Kachuk, um, Elias Lindholm, those guys, we thought that they would be, you know, um, they would come forward and the biggest weakness was going to be their goaltending because we weren't, we weren't sure if Mike Smith was going to be the guy because he hadn't really been the guy um, the entire season. Same with David Riddick. Um, but uh, the opposite happened. And Colorado like came in full force this time. Uh, not only because of Grubauer, who was amazing, um, he has a 939 save percentage and a GA of 1.9 during these uh, five games. But also, Mika Randonen had nine points. Uh, McKinnon had eight points. Tyson Berry had five points. And then you had uh, Colin Wilson, Landeskog, and Matt Nieto all have four points. So this is when, like, like yeah, it was. we all kind of expected that Randonen, McKinnon, and Landeskog would do well. But you also got like depth guys making plays like Colin Wilson, JT Comfer, Matt Niendo. Um, t- I guess Tyson Berry counts as well because defenseman count as a depth person for scoring. So 
that also counts, but um, Ian Cole even got in the mix. I'm looking, Kale McCarr um, was another one um, who just signed after winning his Hobie Baker like the day before. So um, yeah, I know it seems like Colorado has uh, fixed all their problems now and they're going to be a scary team uh, going forward, I feel like. Um, if if they continue with their depth scoring and their goaltending can be as good as it has been. Yeah, in the first two games, they weren't exactly piling up the shots on Mike Smith, but I noticed a lot of quality chances mm-hmm. that Mike Smith was stopping. And I think it really turned around for them in game two when McKinnon scored that OT winner. Calgary's up 2 nothing if they win that game in overtime. They didn't, and they go to Colorado on level playing field. Um, and after that, Colorado really went went to work and took care of business. I mean, in the first period of game three, 22 to eight were the shots in favor of the Avs. Um, they got three goals on Mike Smith there. Um, they had over 50 shots in that game. Uh, game four, another 50 plus shot outing um, against Mike Smith. And they took at least 15 shots on goal in a single frame uh, in regulation eight different times in the series. Um, which, if your Calgary isn't good, uh, what's also great for Colorado is the amount of chances they had in the power play. In game three, they had eight chances in that game alone, and they averaged at least four chances per game with the extra man as well. Uh, when you have a team on the ropes like that, much like we witnessed in the Tampa Columbus series, it's tough for that team to really stick to their strengths when they're trying to fight you off, when they're trying to get out of their zone, when they're trying to kill penalties. So when I look at the grand scheme of things, Colorado played like the better team. Yeah. And another area where they won this series was depth. We were talking about how good Calgary's depth was and whether or not Colorado could um, you know, go against the green and and really fight through that. And Colin Wilson, Colin Wilson of all people, scored two goals in the second period of Game Five, nullifying a Calgary comeback. Really, yeah. and he had four points in this five-game series. Matt Nieto also four points. He had two goals to assist. Uh, JT Confer two goals, one assist. Ian Cole three assists in five games. And then we get to the bread and butter of their offense, which is the top line. And plain and simple, they outmatch Calgary. Eight points for McKinnon. Miko Rantanen comes back from injury, delivers a team-high five goals and nine points in this series. Tyson Berry, five assists. Gabriel Landeskog picks up four points after struggling uh, in the home stretch of the regular season. And when called upon, Grubauer made the timely save. And that right there is how Colorado won it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's... Every, everyone just bought in. Yeah. Um, I also... Yeah, it seems like that. Grubauer's also been phenomenal. I, sh- I feel like I should shout out him. Um, he's been amazing. Um, I also uh, want to shout out Mike Smith as well. In a losing, even though he he lost, um, they lost in four in five games. Um, Mike Smith. Yeah, was, let, let, let's be clear. The Flames lost this series. Mike Smith didn't. Yeah, Mike Smith was the only one that put in effort it felt like um into this series um there are times where it felt like he almost like he was going to steal a game like in game four but um where he had like 49 saves um and uh 
and almost and pretty much single-handedly got them into overtime. Uh, it's just the Flames were not <laughs> doing well. Um, so, yeah, the um, so yeah, I I, I want to shout out Mike Smith. Um, I was wrong with him. I thought he wasn't going to be the guy to um, to lead the Flames into the playoffs, but it turns out that <laughs> it was the other issues that um, were the bigger uh, things to worry about. So. Um, good for Mike Smith to have like a bounce back uh, postseason in that sense. Um, yeah, and, and when when you're looking at the grand scheme of things, when you look at uh, Colorado's goaltending situation, yeah. and and you're not sure if you're going to keep Simeon Barlamov, Mike Smith, who's a pending UFA, <laughs> he might be on their team next year. I don't know about that. Grubauer has been pretty good, but. Um, well, yeah, I know, but I mean, as oh, you mean like as a backup, backup as a role? capable backup for Grubauer, though. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely that could happen. Yeah, although I feel like Mike Smith could still be a starter somewhere, but yeah, yeah that could happen. And we'll, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, when we dissect the flames. Of course, but, of course, uh, that'll be for later. Um, and then um, I'll get into the Lightning and the Penguins in a second, but. Uh, or the, uh, I guess I should say, the teams that have advanced, the Islanders. And the, yeah, the teams that beat them, yeah. Uh, the Blue Jackets in a second. But I but since we talked about them a lot last week, uh, we'll start, we'll do the Dallas Stars here. They advanced uh, last night. Uh, this seemed to be kind of like a boring series, um, more or less. It seemed like ben, more because Ben Bishop and Pecorine were both um, unstoppable. Um, and then that had a lot to do with it, but um, it just ha so happened that uh, Ben Bishop was just that much better than Pecorine um, and, and all that stuff, and guys like uh, Radulov, Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, uh, Klingberg, um, even Matt Zuccarello, they all, they all stepped up um, <laughs> like it, when it matters. Um, Radulov, Ben, Sagan, and Klingberg all had six points in the six games series. Um, and Nashville didn't really have a ton of players that could re that really stepped up. Roman Yossi was their best player in terms of points. Um, and they had, uh, and Roman Yossi only had four points in the six games. So it wasn't, um, you know, the Predators just struggled just offensively speaking, um, in that sense, and I feel like that was a big reason why uh, the Stars were able to beat the Predators. But also, like Ben Bishop has has been steamrolling even during the playoffs. Like we knew that he was really good. Like he was a big reason why the Stars are where they are at right now. But um, he was a big reason to why um, they were able to beat the best team in the Central Division. Um, with uh, he had like uh, he only stopped twelve sh uh, goals in six games, so that's about like two goals per game. Um, that's pretty that's pretty good, um, and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, uh, what do you have on this series? Well, I I feel like Dallas and Nashville both came up with big periods in this series, and other than three power play goals scored in the opening period of Game Four, the Stars did little with the extra man. But 
to be fair to Nashville, the Preds didn't give them all the time in the world either. Um, I, I think the biggest glaring stat was that Dallas's penalty kill was spotless. Zero power play goals against. And I guess you could say that's a plus on Dallas, big minus on Nashville because special teams, I definitely think, could have played a factor in this series if one of them got hot. Um, but like you said, the top line for Dallas, once they really started to get going in game four, they had that big second period in game five where Ben had three assists, Sagan and Radulov both had two points. Um, I really thought at that point we saw Dallas's offense come to life at the best possible time. And when it mattered most, they delivered. Um, their depth also shined. Zuccarello, Heinz, Dickinson, Heiskanen had their moments. Only five scares failed to register a point in this series. Um, but like you said, what can you say about Ben Bishop? Like, the dude was all world for them in this series. Rock sold in game six. Almost, almost got them a game two win as well, but the Preds won that in overtime. Um, he had um, 206 saves on 218 shots. Definitely made the saves when when his team really needed it. Um, been their most consistent player this year, even when their offense wasn't going. And I think, honestly, he's playing his best hockey since maybe 2015 when Tampa went to the Stanley Cup Finals. Um, and definitely a big piece of their team last year. But I really think he's he's found that that next level and for st louis if, if i'm st louis that that spells big time trouble um the fact that dallas was able to upset a division champ not as startling to me but also kind of startling because now they have goaltending now they have defense they're blocking shots but now the offense is starting to come to life so st louis is gonna have to match the punch for punch here yeah, for sure. Um, it's going to... Yeah, that should be an interesting series because both Bennington and Bishop have been um, very good this uh, in this uh, you know, in this playoffs. Um, so it should be interesting to see how they do. But like, I feel like the Blues' offense has been more effective than the Stars' offense even though the Stars offense has been pretty good as well. So um, I, I would give the slight edge to the Blues, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Stars um, win, win this series. Honestly, with the way these playoffs have gone, I don't know what to expect anymore. Yeah. It might just be <laughs> just all four wild cards. Yeah. That's all I ask. You know? It might be a Canes, uh, Jackets, <laughs> Uh, stars uh, avalanche uh, final four uh, yeah. yeah all wild the card final, final four. four you can think of it just well no it's just the, the all the wild card final four literally um, <laughs> but um, yeah no it's uh, it's been um, it's been a, exciting playoffs for sure just because of all these upsets yeah uh, exciting and probably one of the most unpredictable I yeah. can recall it's exciting, except for when it's my team. But yeah, um, other than that, um, yeah, more exciting for me because I don't have allegiance. Yeah, you to don't actually care. Yeah, you don't care yeah. too much about it. Yeah, I don't care who wins. Um. Anyways, uh, the Islanders and the Penguins. Um, 
we did talk about this briefly last week, but the Islanders swept the Penguins. Um, this felt more about like the Penguins uh, struggling than the Islanders actually winning. Not not to discredit what uh, you know Robin Leonard or Jordan Eberle and what they accomplished, but it just felt to me that um, it just felt to me that like Crosby and Malkin weren't. Um, weren't as effective as we used to be. And I'm looking here, like, so game one uh, went into overtime. Islanders win that game. But then, like, game two, game three, game four, Penguins only get one goal each of those games. So that's just, I mean, the Islanders get three goals in game two, four goals in game three, and then three goals in game four. So just, you know, it just shows that they didn't need to score too much um, they just needed to, like, outplay the Penguins, which I guess, you know, you always have to do, but, um, it, it just felt like the, um, it felt more to me that the Penguins were struggling versus the, uh, Islanders were that much better. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to, like, discredit, uh, what the Islanders did. Uh, Jordan Eberle had six points. Matt Barzal had five points. Uh, those were the big. Filippila and Josh Bailey had four points um, in these four games. Um, and then Robin Leonard, it goes without saying, it was incredible as well. Six goals against in the four games. 9.56 save percentage and a 1.47 goals against average. Um, so, um, yeah, he was, he was very good. Um, yeah, what what do you uh anything else to say about the Islanders sweeping the Penguins? Well, yeah, I, I definitely think there were some faults of Pittsburgh, but um give credit where credit is due to the Islanders. Um dispatching a talented team like that is no easy task. Doing it in four games is even tougher. And I'll I'll give full credit to Jordan Eberle as well. I mean just a couple of years ago in 2017 with Edmonton, he was a non-factor. I think he got like two assists in 12 or 13 games and four goals and two assists in this four game sweep. Uh, definitely a different player getting hot at the right time. Also leads the Islanders with 15 shots during those four matches. Um, sound, uh, sounds like a very determined player. And speaking of determined, Robin Leonard, is playing like a determined player as well. Uh, stopped 130 of 136 during this sweep. Uh, the defensive system of Barry Trotz, I certainly think has helped Robin Leonard a lot. And heading into round two, um, they might be without Johnny Boychuk for three to four weeks, but um, I think the Islanders have that next man up mentality and the confidence to maybe reach the conference finals. And um, they're probably going to get a tough opponent, whether it's the Hurricanes or the Capitals. But um, I, I, think, I think the Islanders are in a position to surprise now. I, I really think that a, a conference final berth isn't out of reach for them. Yeah, I think they're the only, I guess the Sharks and the Bruins haven't played yet. But I was going to say that I think that they were the only two seeds still left as well. But um, I guess if the Bruins and the Sharks lose tonight... Um, then, then they will be. Um, but yeah, no, it's it does seem yeah, like so, so. They they would have the, they would they would be the highest seed left. That's well, right. that that is if the Capitals also assuming lose. that yeah. yeah, the Bruins 
assuming the Bruins All and the, the Caps seeds, yeah. and um, the Sharks lose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It would be the highest seed left. Um, so basically, they're rooting for all the upsets this uh, <laughs> the next in the next two days. Um, so um, yeah, that's. That's, uh, yeah, I don't think there's that much else to say. We'll talk about the Penguins um, and their demise um, in a second. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it does seem, you, you, you do seem to be on to something where it feels like no one's really talking about the Islanders. And they also swept um, a, a good team in the Penguins. But, um, you know, we were all more focused on the other game that we're about to, the other series that we're about to talk about. Um, which is the Blue Jackets and the Lightning. Um, this uh, this series was um, so. This was first off. This was the first time the uh, this was uh, the first series win that the Blue Jackets um, won in their franchise history, um, which is um, phenomenal. And like, what a way to do that. Um, they, um, you know, Tampa Bay Lightning were, you know, they had the third best record of, in NHL history. Um, they, I think they were tied for second even. Um, so, um, and they kind of, they just manhandled the Lightning in all four of these games. Like it wasn't, I mean, I guess the first game was pretty close, but like all the other games, it wasn't even close. Uh, Blue Jackets, um... In game two, it was like 5-1. In game three, it was 3-1. So I guess it was somewhat close there. But in game four, uh, it was just all hell breaks loose, literally. Um, Blue Jackets win 7-3. This this may be the biggest upset, not just in NHL history, but like in sports history. It's up there. Yeah, definitely up there. there. Um, I know it's just a first round thing, but like... Um, we were talking about this all last week, but, you know, like, it's it's one thing for the Lightning to not win the Stanley Cup Finals. We get it. You know, it's a tough thing. But to not even make it to the, the second round is... To not even win a playoff game. Yeah. To not even win a playoff crazy. game is, is kind of... It's just pathetic, really. Yeah, um, and it's never happened before. And it's so never of happened everyone's before. Gonna remember, right. That's all they're going to remember for. Yeah. Not for the 61 or 62 wins. They're going to remember Tampa Bay for not even winning a playoff game after finishing with the best record. It's never yeah. happened before. For sure. So, um, but I, I do want to mention that uh, Matt Duchesne um, had seven points. Uh, Artemi Panarin had five points. So did Zach Wawrenski. Seth Jones was also good with four points. Um, and then we had Borkstrom and, uh, and Atkinson, who had four points as well. Um, and then in terms of goaltending, Bobrowski had, uh, he only gave up eight goals in four games. So I just add to two goals a game. Game that was his GAA too, um, and a save percentage of nine thirty two. So, um, yeah, he was he was he was pretty good, um, obviously. Um, when you do that to a, a Blue Jackets team, but I, I feel like this this just show this this Blue Jackets team was what we kind of expected the Blue Jackets to be when they went out and got Matt Duchesne, when they went out and got Ryan Dezingle, um. Like this is what we were expecting the Blue Jackets to be, and 
and they delivered um, in that sense. So I feel like, ju- like even if Matt Duchesne doesn't sign this offseason and they're going to lose Bobrovsky and Panarin, um, already their playoff push um, is a success just because they were able to sweep the Lightning. Um, even if they lose in the next round, whoever, if it's the Leafs or if it's the Bruins. So, um, yeah. Um, what what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I think if you're Columbus and the Islanders, you need to be absolutely hungry to go as far as you possibly can because you are not going to get a better playoff draw than the one you're getting right now. Like, what? We're talking about all the top seeds potentially out of round one. If the Hurricanes beat the Capitals, all the division champs are done. None of them making it to round two. And the highest seed could be the New York Islanders, potentially, if all the top seeds that are still left go down as well. Um, So Columbus really needs to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, There were a lot of fairly close games. You know, that 7-3 game, there were like three or four empty netters in the third period. So that was still a one-goal game for the most part. Um, I I think if I had to pinpoint uh, a part where Columbus won this series, it was probably the third period. Um, In game one, Tampa had a 3-1 lead after 20 minutes. They gave up three unanswered goals there. Um, Probably the turning point in this series as well. The Jackets were able to separate themselves from Tampa in the final period of Game 2. They did a good job of closing the deal in Game 3 as well. And then in the finale, Bobrovsky didn't give the Bolts much of anything. Uh, So, um, I I, I, I don't know. I I, I think part of it, obviously, was due to Columbus playing well. But there were games in the regular season where – it didn't matter if Tampa was down by two in the final frame. They would find a way to get it done. And in the playoffs, they just didn't have that pushback to really climb out of those holes that they dug themselves. And I never thought for a second they had a chance to play their game, and that's partly because Columbus maybe didn't really give them much of a chance to do so. Um, and, and the damage had been done when they started to finally play their game in game four. I think the second period of game four was one of the best that they played besides the first 20 minutes of game one. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think uh, Columbus was deserving of advancing to round two, all things considered, though. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you think there is something to, because, like, do you think there's something to the fact that the Blue Jackets have, they're now on, like, a four-day rest, five-day rest? Um the Islanders are also on a five-day rest as well. Do you think they're going to be rusty come the second round? I, yeah, it's funny. You should, it's funny you should mention that because I actually saw an article that said that the Blue Jackets are playing a simulated game and they invited uh, a lot of wider arena to show up. So um, they're they're definitely trying to stay loose, and making sure that rust isn't a factor. Uh, John Tortorella also has a bit of Stanley Cup experience. Yes, he's had a lot of playoff failures. Mm-hmm. But he's won a Stanley Cup with the Tampa Bay Lightning That's back true. in 2004. I think some people forget about that sometimes. And so I forgot he was I, a coach I, there I think for a he's second. Gonna, yeah, I think he's going to do as as much work as he can to make sure that this team is zoned in. And a lot of these guys are determined. Um, so I don't think rust is going to affect them. I also think Barry Trotz has been around uh, uh, quite a few rodeos in his career. 
uh, where he's going to have those guys uh, all prepped up and ready to go. And, and those guys are determined to win as well. They're determined to prove to a lot of people that, yeah, we don't have John Tavares, but we can still make the final four without him. So um, I, I think both teams will be equally motivated, equally determined to advance to the conference finals. And uh, I think both stand a good chance. Yeah, I, I it is an interesting thing. I mean, also Barry Trotz is the coach for you know he won last year, uh, and he's also a very good coach as well. So, um, yeah, I, I I think they'll be able, they're they're in good hands with those two coaches, but um, it's still like there is something that you have to. It's like a psychological thing now where it's like yeah, it's good to have rest, and it's good that you swept the team, but at there comes to a point where you don't want to be too rested. So I feel like that was a big reason why the Blue Jackets were able to um, have that edge over the Lightning because the, like, the Lightning were just playing, you know, mindless hockey for the last couple of months, whereas the Blue Jackets were f- fighting every single game. And they had, and like, when it came to the playoffs time, Columbus was able to, um, like, they were already in that mode. Whereas it took a while for it never really took the Tampa Bay Lightning to get to that point um, where they were fighting. So um, I think there is something to maybe too much rest, but we'll, it's something that we'll have to see uh, regardless of who their opponent is. Yeah, and, and what's also going to be interesting for both of the Islanders and uh, the Blue Jackets is they're going to be going up against an opponent that just came off a seven-game series yep. and are probably going to be maybe a bit tired. Yep. And I think if they expose that early in the series, uh, their opponent's going to be in for a rough ride. For sure. Uh, let's talk about, before we get into the Game 7 previews, let's go to the, uh, let's talk about the eliminated teams for a second here. Um, yes, let us do our post-mortems. Exactly. Um, the Winnipeg, we'll start with the Winnipeg Jets because they have the craziest, I think they have the, the craziest offseason. It's going to be f- uh, filled with, um, I feel like there's there has to be a lot of moves because they have a couple of UFAs, a couple of RFAs to deal with. Um, also wanted to mention uh, that Nick Ellers fractured a bone in game five um and patrick line struggled with a back issue all year you guys know how much i hate uh when players play injured but yeah uh, especially this one where pat like you knew something was up i guess because like that was the whole that was like a big storyline this whole year it's like what's up with patrick line well turns out it's his back issue that he's been playing with it is what i have two thoughts here one He's 21 years old, so that's like, it's crazy that he's having back issues right now. Um, so it's just a sad sight to see. So I hope he gets it taken care of. At the same yeah, time, you, you hope yeah. that's not an issue that lingers because exactly. that could really affect his career for sure yeah. if, if he doesn't take care of it. Also, at the same time, he had 30 goals with a back issue, so that just makes yeah. it even more and impressive. 18 goals in one month. Yeah, yeah. So that just makes it more impressive that he was able to play. Like, he was actually pretty good while injured. But at the same time, this is just a big thing. Like, I'm sure this, like, Patrick Liney is not the only one who was playing injured. Um, but, 
you know, you you can't be playing you can't be playing with a broken back or whatever he had. Like you can't if you're injured, just stay out. It's not worth it. Um, it just it hurts your long term potential, especially with a guy like Patrick Line who's so young and he has he's already so good, yet like you know it's just. He's gonna fuck up. He may. F- oh, damn it! Now I, I swear there. <laughs> hey, that's hey. You, I, I'm you just frustrated. I have no control over what. You're I, I, I'm just frustrated over, uh, over Patrick Line. Here. I, I feel. I it's feel just, like when people play hurt, it's not just so they can help their team win. It's yeah. to make sure you get and you go on one of these epic rants. Yeah, basically, I feel like I feel like Patrick Liney just injured himself. Just, like he played injured the entire season just to annoy me. Because especially since I had him in two leagues, I'm yeah, like he he knew too, yeah. he knew I I hate this is my biggest pet peeve, and he just uh, I don't know. Um, anyways, I hope I hope he figures it out uh, this off season. But he's gonna be an RFA. So is um, so that he's gonna. That's certainly that's gonna affect his pay. Maybe that's why he played injured is because he realized he wouldn't be, he wouldn't make as much money, I guess, if he wasn't. But um, he still has a ton of potential. Even still, he's only twenty one years old. He's only gonna yeah. get better, um, even with all this back stuff. Um, Kyle Connor, he's gonna get a pay raise as well. He's gonna be an RFA. Um, and then you have Kevin Hayes as a UFA, Brandon Tanev um, as a UFA, Parland Holm um, as a UFA. And then we have uh, Jacob Truba, who it looks like he's gone. Uh, there were reports that Truba is already on the way out. Um, Tyler Myers is going to be a UFA. Um, I think those are all the big ones. Um, Nathan Bullio, I guess he's an RFA. I didn't realize he was on the team. <laughs> um, and uh, he just conveniently popped up on the roster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just looking here now. on the cap friendly page here. But yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, Truba, Line, Connor are all going to be interesting to see um, what happens with those guys. Um, Kevin Hayes was he was decent during the series, but. Um, and, and when he was playing for the Winnipeg Jets, but it's, it's unclear if they're just because they're going to have to pay Line and Connor. Um, like, I'm not sure if Hayes, if they're going to be able to fit Hayes into this uh, system because of that. So, um, so there, there becomes a bit of, I'm not sure about Kevin Hayes, but I feel like Patrick Line and Kyle, Kyle Connor should be their top priority in terms of who they sign this year. Yeah, they should be and they will be. Um, honestly, I still can't believe the Jets are done this early. And yeah. even though Blake Wheeler said that the Blues just play better and their better performance was pretty darn good, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think what he said was, was pretty true um, in that – the Stanley Cup is tough to win, even if you already have what you need to get it done. Like, the opportunity to win for Winnipeg was there. It was there in Game 3. It was there in Game 4. It was there when they were up 2 nothing in Game 5. Um, you know, people can say that Kevin Hayes' unintentional goal line save uh, on, in, in the Blues' crease, you oh, know, man. was the reason why they lost Game 5 or Truba's bad pinch behind the net cost in the series, but... 
at the end of the day, if you find a way to close out game five and don't get it to two to two, those two plays don't matter. Yeah. Those two plays aren't the vocal points. They just didn't close the deal when they had the chance and it, it came back to bite them big time. Um, and whether or not they won the Stanley Cup, whether or not they got to round two or round three or the finals or even getting knocked out of round one, it wasn't going to change what was going to happen in the offseason. And you're right. This is going to be a very tough summer for Kevin Shoveldayoff because there's going to be a lot of tough decisions that yeah. he has to make here. Um, and I don't blame the pending RFAs and UFAs for not really saying too much because, you know, a lot of them want to stay. Tyler Myers wants to come back. Brandon Tano says it's really too early to talk about it. Kyle Connor says he'll let his agent handle it. Kevin Hayes says he loves Winnipeg. Ben Schrott says he loves playing in Canada. Andrew Cobb says, well, we'll wait and see. Um, and then, of course, there's Patrick Line who likes Winnipeg too. So I'm sure there are a lot of guys on that roster that want to stay with Winnipeg. But just with today's salary cap, it's going to be tough to keep all of them. In fact, it's mm-hmm. impossible to keep all of them. Um, the good news for Winnipeg is they have Christian Vasilainen waiting in the wings, so they could lose, they could, I guess, afford to lose a couple of depth forwards. Um, on the back end, they have guys like Tucker Pullman, uh, Sam Naiku, uh, Logan Stanley. All three of those guys are in the system waiting True. to make it to the big leagues someday. So if they lose someone like, say, Jacob Truba or Tyler Myers, um, they do have some pieces within the organization that may be able to fill some of the voids. Um, and they also have just under $4 million in cap space, which is double that of Tampa. So... Um, Um, but I think when I look at the one key piece that is going to be heading out, um, two contract discussions, they've been far from smooth. Uh, when asked about Truba, Shevoldayoff said he's an RFA with arbitration rights. And then Truba was asked if he plays a role in helping the Jets stay under the cap for the next year and beyond. And he responds by saying, that's Chevy's job. So, right. uh, needless to say, I don't think Truba is going to be coming back. Um, the good news for Winnipeg is, like Chevaldeoff mentioned, he is an RFA with arbitration rights, so they still have club control, which means they could trade him. Yep. And I think the trade market for Jacob Truba has never been higher. He had True. his first... 50-point season. He didn't have a 40-point season on his resume at the start of this year. Um, so I think that certainly plays into Sheveldayoff's hands. They could definitely get um, some good value for Jacob Truba, a guy that I'm sure a lot of NHL teams would be interested in acquiring. And I think the key for Winnipeg to stay relevant as the cap crunch really hits them. And it, this offseason is just going to be the beginning of that. Moving forward, acquiring assets as you're dishing them away is going to be so important for the Jets to stay relevant in the short term and in the long term. And I think for them to make up for some of the short term assets they've had to give up for some of the guys they've acquired, like Paul Stastny and Kevin Hayes in recent years, I think Jacob Truba, trading Jacob Truba, maybe to a team that'd be willing to sign Jacob Truba to a long term deal. 
I think that's probably the wisest thing for both fronts because much Jacob Truba wants to stay in Winnipeg uh, and take a pay cut. And I don't know if he's really committed to playing in Winnipeg. So I think the best option for both sides is to move on. Yeah, I I agree with that. Uh, I don't think Jacob Truba is going to be playing um, in Winnipeg. Um, and he does have a high trade value. I just don't know exactly who they're going to get in return. But, um, you know, um, I think the top priority for Winnipeg is is uh, making sure Kyle Connor and Patrick Laine are signed because I think those are the only two that um, would have a lasting effect if those guys were gone. Yeah, and, and I think if you wait another year for Jacob Truba, one year closer to unrestricted at that point he can just leave for nothing yeah not sign with you right. so that's why i think trading him this off season not even waiting another year trading him now is the best way to go exactly uh let's go to the flames here um we kind of talked about why they lost the series it seemed like you know guys like goudreau monahan um those guys uh, uh kachuk they all kind of just fell flat um, this season. It happens, but, you know, it's obviously the worst time to, for it to happen. Um, but, like, I'm looking here at the cap friendly page. They're, they're somewhat in good shape. Um, they're only... They have uh, Matthew Kachuk, who's going to be an RFA, um, and Sam Bennett will also be an RFA. Um, but in terms of, like... Those are the only two big ones in terms of free agents. But I do want to talk about the fact that James Neal... I forgot about James Neal. He didn't even... He wasn't even a part of this whole... Um, you know, he, he didn't really show up at all th- during the playoffs. He didn't even show up during the regular season. Um, and he's making 5.7... He didn't show up in game five because they scratched him. Yeah, he was healthy scratch. So they need to figure out a way to... Uh, to what they have to figure out what to do with James Neal because he has four years left on his contract now. Yeah, they um, just signed him like yeah. less than twelve months ago. Yeah, exactly. Um. Oh, I guess they. Mike Smith's going to be UFA and David Riddick's going to be an RFA next year. Yeah. So, um. So they do have that to worry about as well. But, um. Yeah, it's pretty much uh Sam Bennett, Matthew Kachuk, David Riddick as RFAs, and Mike Smith as UFAs. Um. That they really have to worry about. Um. Yeah, and I think we mentioned this before. Mike Smith could be on the Cal- uh, Colorado Avalanche. Um, that would be interesting. I don't know. I guess John. They ha- the Flames have John Gillies in the system. They also have uh, Tyler Parsons as well. But you never know with these go- with goalies and how good they would be. But David Reddick could uh, could be the goalie for, of the future for them, um, in a way. Um, and we'll we just have to see. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, in terms of the future, it seems like they have a lot of guys locked up already. Um, it's just mostly James Neal is the big one where we're like, uh, that's not gonna, it's already not working out and there's Mm -hmm. four years left on that contract. Um, yeah. Brad Living does not look good on that side. He looks really good with the Elias Lindholm signing, but uh, 
made up for it in the worst of ways by that of James Neal extension. Um, it, it's remarkable how the top two teams in the NBA both bounced in the first round. First time that's ever happened where the top teams in both conferences um, have exited uh, the playoff pool after just one round. And like you talk about Tampa and Calgary, 112 wins combined, 235 points combined, eight straight losses between them. They only combined for just a single win. How on earth are those two teams on the golf course in less than two weeks? And I'll bet you fans want answers and they want them right away. But I think that's the last thing you should be giving fans right now if you're Brad for living, if you're the Flames front office, because this is going to take a lot of time for Calgary to sift through. There's no one reason to explain this early postseason departure, and I think overreaction of any sort is the last thing this team needs. Um, they're the, they were in the NHL's top five in the regular season for fewest shots against per game, and yet Mike Smith was getting 30 to 40 shots a game in this series. It's tough to explain how they go to the old identity that failed them in previous campaigns in less than two weeks' time. So, um, looking forward, uh, the future still looks pretty bright. Um, draft pick-wise, not so much. They're without four of their original seven picks in this year's draft, similar to the Jets. They do have a late first-round pick, though. Uh, in 2020, they're missing a fourth, but they had the rest of their picks in 2020 intact. All of their picks in 2021 are also intact. Uh, Lindholm, Backlund, Monaghan, Gautreaux, all in it for the long haul contract-wise. Giordano has three more years left. Hannafin has another five. Brody, Hamnick, Stone all have one more year left on their current deals before they become UFAs, which is decent for the short term. Uh, Anderson and Kylington are RFAs after next year. Um, Prout and Fantenberg are the only uh, defenders that need to be re-upped or else they hit the open market. Um, on forwards, Hathaway provides a lot of grit. He's the only key UFA up front this year. Um, they, on the RFA front, uh, as far as forwards go, they have two big names, Matt and Sam Bennett. And everyone knows how good Matt was. Did anyone notice that Sam Bennett was a top three scorer for the playoffs he had five points and he also was second on the team in hits so he had a massive playoffs for them he certainly stepped up his game uh you have dylan dube under his entry level for another two years that's good uh jankowski has another year left before he's an rfa uh like you said james neal and the goaltending are are the main questions and for james neal the question is the same as I had at the beginning of the year. If you put James Neal on the top line, is he going to put up the stats? Because they gave Elias Lindholm more exposure, more time in the top six, and he benefited. Is giving James Neal more top line time, more top six minutes, is that going to result in a better season, 40, 50, 60 points? And the danger with that is, okay, if you do that, is that going to negatively impact Elias Lindholm's game? Because the fear I had at the start of this year is you can only put one of James Neal or Elias Lindholm on the top line if you wanted to. And the other guy's going to get less ice time, less chances to score on the power play. And Elias Lindholm benefited this year. James Neal did not. So is it going to be the reverse if you put James Neal in a bigger role? So that's the question I'm going to have. And uh, the answer is hopefully if I give James Neal more ice time, 
Elias Lindholm doesn't care, and he still puts up sixty to seventy points regardless. So uh, that's that's what I, that's what I'm hoping for is that there's a way to get Elias Lindholm going and James Neal going, and if they're able to do that, they'll be even better next year. Uh, like you said, big save, Dave. Under club control, pending RFA. Uh, Mike Smith, huge in the playoffs, but he's going to be a UFA. And he's definitely played well enough down the stretch to earn himself a job next year, whether it's with Calgary or elsewhere. And I think he gets brought back depending on how confident they feel with their young goalies, John Gillies and Tyler Parsons. If they think one of those young goalies is ready, I don't think they keep Mike Smith. If they think they need those young goalies to develop another year or two more, I think maybe they bring back Mike Smith if it's for one year and if it's at a reasonable price. If Mike Smith isn't willing to waver on one of those two scenarios, he probably is heading for a new hometown. So um, I think at the right price and the right term, they could bring Mike Smith back, but it all depends on how they feel about their young goalies. Um, Mike Smith is going to find uh, a gig, whether it's in Calgary or not. So if I'm Mike Smith, I'm not too worried. Yeah, um, but I don't know. I feel like Mike Smith may be uh, going somewhere else. But yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, right. Colorado might be an option because um, I, I think given the choice between Barlamov and Mike Smith, based on recent play, I'd go with Mike Smith without a doubt. Yeah, for sure. Um. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the Nashville Predators here. Um, they're actually in pretty good shape in terms of UFAs um, and RFAs. Um, Wayne Simmons, Brian Boyle, um, Cody McLeod, and Zach Ronaldo are the only UFAs. And even in RFAs, they don't have a ton to worry about because they have Rocco Grimaldi and Colton Sissons. But everyone else... Um, is pretty much uh, signed for more than uh, next year. Um, and that's, you know, and all those guys I just mentioned aren't really a part of their core or anything, so they could afford to lose those guys. Um, yeah, the thing that's interesting about the Predators is that, like, you know, I, I'm looking here, like, Kyle Turris, um, he was on the fourth line, but he's making $6 million. That seems kind of crazy to me. Um, Michael Granlin had an okay uh, playoffs and um, decent uh, regular season, but um, you know I think the thing with the Predators and and why they lost uh, during you know the regular season was just it felt like they um, <clears throat> they just struggled offensively. Um, of course, Philip Forsberg and uh, Victor Arvidsson are very good players, but. Um, you know, it, it seems like those are the only two guys that were even stepping up at all. So I'm, I, I'm not really sh I feel like David Poyle is obviously a very good GM. He's, in fact, probably the best GM out there. But it's just uh, tough to know exactly how you fix this situation because I feel like um, all these guys are like just struggling this year and it's I'm not necessarily sure if it's going to get better or not um yeah yeah um speaking of uh, their top line guys um I don't know if it was whether or not Dallas held them in check or they didn't show up but uh 
Johansson and Forsberg combined for four points. Granlin and Boyle had two points each. Simmons got nothing over the two games he played, so the trade deadline acquisitions didn't do much. Victor Arvidsson, goalless and pointless through six games. So for whatever reason, despite his remarkable 30-35 to 35 goal season, did nothing in the playoffs. He, he, he didn't – he maybe tried to get results, but he didn't get results. Um, so that, that was unfortunate for Nashville there, I think. Um, if he does something, um, maybe it could be a different series. Rocco Grimaldi, by the way, had three goals in uh, five or six games that he played. So um, the depth, some of their depth guys um, came to play as well uh, in the later stages of the series. Pecorine, his GAA and C percentage weren't all that flattering, but um, I think if you take away that rough period in game four, um, Pecorine played a rather decent playoffs. It's just Ben Bishop was at another level. And um, he, he unfairly got out dueled there, which is, um, again, another reason why Nashville uh, didn't go as far as they probably should have. Um, and now David Poyle will have to answer some offseason questions, find a way to keep most of this team intact, and find a way to make his team better. And last year, that's what he didn't do. He yeah. stood back with his core, didn't make any changes. He mostly kept what he had, but I think he needs to add a big piece this year if he can. They have over $4 million in cap space right now. Simmons is likely gone. I could see Boyle returning, but I think two years at a reasonable price is the most I'd be willing to give them. Um, they have a late first, but they don't have a second in June's draft. McLeod and Ronaldo are probably gone if Boyle stays, so that saves up maybe $1 to $2 million there. Uh, Grimaldi and Sissons, like you mentioned, maybe Boyle could re-sign the both for a cheap price. 12 to 16 months is where it's going to get tricky because Craig Smith and Mikhail Granlund are big-name RFAs. Salamaki, Goudreau, and Austin Watson are also UFAs. Johansson, Forsberg, and Erdson, they're not going anywhere. You don't have to worry about them. Philip Forsberg will have to re-sign first out of that group, but that's not in three seasons from now. You still have tourists locked up. Um, some death pieces will need to be resigned, but for the most part, your core guys are your core guys for the next four or five, six years. The big fish that David Poyle is going to have to cough up money to is Roman Yossi. His current cap hit is 4 million, which is unbelievably cheap for a player of his caliber. And he's going to get way more than that within the next year or so. And it would not surprise me in the slightest if David Poyle is eager to get him locked into a new deal before July 1st of this year, because there's this guy, you probably heard of him, named Eric Carlson, who's going to be getting paid a lot of money. And I think the market for Yossi could get a lot bigger in value if he waits long enough. That's a good point, yeah. and And when you think back to last year, one of the first things that David Poyle did was ink Ryan Ellis to a long-term deal 12 months before he was slated to hit free agency. And I think he's going to do the same thing here. And depending on that price tag of Yossi's new deal, I could also see P.K. Subban becoming trade bait if the Preds are short on cash. Not not this year, but down the road, closer to the expiration of his next deal. His deal expires in three years at the same time as Matias Ekholm. And Matias has showed a lot of upside from an offensive standpoint this year. His defensive game has already been there for a few seasons now. He, there's no question what P.K. Subban brings to the Predators. He's certainly valuable to them. 
but he could also be very valuable on the trade market if they need to shake things up a bit. I don't think yeah. they do it right now, but down the road, if this is a recurring theme, it might happen. Yeah, that's a good point about Roman Yossi. I, he's going to be UFA not this year, but next year. Um, so they're, they're probably going to try to lock him up um, long term because he is their best defenseman, um, even more than P.K. Subban. Um, and Subban's making $9 million, so that would make Subban expendable. Um, the other, so I have two ideas um, just while you were talking um, that I was thinking about is uh, one that's less sexy, um, but uh, could be something, is they have Dante Fabro in the mix now. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering that because they have Subin, because they have Yossi, Ekholm, and Ryan Ellis, those are all good big-time defensemen for them. Um, I'm wondering if maybe they use Dante Fabro as tra- trade bait um, and trade him to someone. Because he, he can get a ton of ice time um, on another team um, uh, with... Uh, and get something back in return for that. So maybe they trade one their their high uh, prospect in Dante Fabro, purely because they're very strong on defense. Um, however, I guess you you do run the risk of having like trading away Seth Jones like they did a couple of years ago. Um, so so maybe you don't do that, or maybe you trade someone like Matthias Ekholm. Or Ellis, or like you were saying with Sub, maybe you trade Subban as well. But um, it seems... I think it'll be cheaper to keep Ekholm, and yeah. the way that Mateus Ekholm played offensively gives me more reason to sign him than re-sign PK Subban just because of the price tag factor. True, and but I, I, I go... think you could get you could get more for out of Ekholm uh, just because of that price tag. Well, um, yeah, that's that's also true. That's so, also true. Um, um, and I then, also think it, it, if Fabro has a good year, though, yeah, and he's cheaper to keep around, I would throw that as another reason to possibly trade PK Subban oh, yeah. if Fabro has a big that's year. A good, that's a good point. Um, also, now here's going to be my biggest one. Okay. Uh, you so you have uh, so this has been quite some time now where you have Rene and Saros um, as your two goalies here. But, um, but because you have to pay Roman Yossi, um, and you you know, uh, teams are getting and Pekarini is getting very old, um, so that he has three years left in, on his contract. I feel like you could trade Pekarini um, and get something in return. Um, <clears throat> Even though he's making five million left, he's only he's he you know he he's he's around that age where he's going to start declining um, in um, in ability and yeah fizzling out a little yeah yeah and so you you start bringing up UC Saros and giving him more of a starting role um, and you can trade Pecarine right now while he has some value in him. Um, before he starts to become, you know, something else entirely. So I, and, and especially now that UC Saros is making 1.5 million, um, and whereas Pecorini is making 5 million, and like 
you know, the next two years, um, that's, you know, that's, you're saving a lot of money if you just trade Pecorine. Um, and you could get some something back. Um, maybe you get another goalie just so that you have something um, in return, but um, I, I could see maybe trading Pecorine um, to, uh, to spark something up. Yeah, I don't think they're going to do that just yet. I think yeah. what I could see is they go 1A, 1B with Rene and Zero, split the duties between them next year, see what Zero's uh, can do with, um, again, an increased workload. I think he, I think, I think their objective is to start getting him more starts. Mm-hmm. And I think I could see a Pecorino trade happen. I don't think this offseason, but maybe next offseason, if we're still talking about them 12 months from now and they don't have a title to show for it. But sure. um, I I think it's still too early to put all their eggs in one basket with UC Saros. Um, I think 12 months down the line, if Saros has a great year and Nashville comes out empty-handed again, I think maybe trading Pecorino wouldn't – it would be tough – to see happen but it wouldn't be out of left field yeah i guess you may be right maybe they give him one more year to see how saros does like maybe they give saros more of a more starts or something like that yeah um all right let's go to the tampa bay lightning here um their biggest worry this offseason is going to be Braden point um he's gonna be an rfa he's Due for a big pay raise out here. Um, <clears throat> other than that, I mean, they have a couple of UFAs on the defensive side: um, <clears throat> Anton Strallman, Braden Coburn, Dan Girardi, and Jan Ruta are all UFAs, um, and that means that the only defense su- defensemen signed long term for the Lightning are Hedman, McDonough, Sergachev, and Cernak so that they're gonna have to they're gonna be in need for some defensemen um in the offseason um yeah I mean this I mean even though the Lightning had a historic regular season this the the way that they left in the playoffs is just a disappointment now so they have to I feel like they have to change something up I'm not necessarily sure what you do um because like because you, part of me is wondering, like, do you stick with what was working? Because you kind of have to, but at the same time, you know, you can't just like, just stay put um, after what happened in the playoffs. So um, I'm not sure what go what's going to happen in in that regard. Um, I think there were some rumors that maybe John Cooper like leaves because of what happened, but that doesn't make sense to me either. Um, yeah, what's what's know, interesting it's, it's about those situation. rumors is that Julie Breeswad, his end of year press conference, said that he would have given John Cooper an extension even if they didn't give it to him after the playoffs and they got swept by Columbus anyway. Oh, so I think John Cooper is still their guy. Okay, but yeah, oh yeah, that's right because they they signed him to an extension. We we talked about that. So yeah. yeah, I guess I guess his job is safe, but it would have made sense anyways. Um, if they um, if they fired him, um, but yeah, I don't I don't really it's a tricky situation because you don't really change much 
because they did so well in the regular season. But at the same time, I feel like you do have to change something because of what happened. Yeah, and I think that, like I said with Calgary, too, there's the immediate reaction of, like, you're first in the conference, first in the league. Right. You, know, you didn't do anything in the playoffs. Do something in the offseason, or you're not going to be that good next year. Well, um, I, I, I think maybe – well. I, they're they're going to have to do something. They're not going to keep the current group together. Yeah. It, they, um, they're also losing a couple of future assets. They're already without a second-round pick this year as well as a fifth. Um, the good news is in 2020 and 2021, they have all their draft picks intact. Um, Callahan's going to be UFA after next year, so they might be able to split a bit of that cash to keep guys like Sorelli and Joseph around when they become RFAs after next season ends. The problem is, as you mentioned earlier, that same time, Sergachev and Vasilevsky become RFAs. Right. And you'll have to pay them a lot of money. So it's going to add up. And then, of course, the big fish in Braden Point, he's going to get paid major bucks. Um, other key RFAs, once we hit July 1st, include Martel, Paquette, and Adam Earn, uh, Strawman, Coburn, Girardi, Ruda, all UFAs on the back end this coming Canada Day. I think we're going to see most of the change on the back end with those four UFAs. Um, On the bright side, they do have a lot of young prospects waiting to make the big club. Um, On defense, they have Callum Foote, along with Dominic Machine and Matt Spencer. Up front, you have Mitch Stevens, Boris Kachuk, and Taylor Radish trying to make their way uh, in the AHL, trying to find their groove as well. Um, You already have an AHL prospect in Alex Barre-Boulay, who had 34 goals and 68 points. Out of, out of the group of young prospects they have, I think he's the guy that's most likely to make the big league jump next year. They also have Gabriel Forche, who's in junior right now. Going to need some time to develop, but in three, maybe four years, could be NHL ready. So they definitely have some guys waiting in the wings uh, that could make the transition less painful. But... Um, in the immediate future, in the immediate future, in the next year or so, it, it could be a bit of a challenge. But one thought I've also been hearing a lot about is whether or not they should cut some key pieces. Should they trade away some key pieces? Can they win with this core as it stands? And Gord Miller pointed out that previous Presidents Trophy winners in recent memory that he's noticed, they've had at least one talent that has won a Stanley Cup before. When he looked at this year's Tampa Bay Lightning, he didn't see one player with a previous championship ring. And they also didn't have that playoff adversity. They hadn't played like themselves in the final five to 10 games, according to Vasilevsky. He claims it carried over into the playoffs as well. The difference is in the regular season, it didn't come back to bite them. In the playoffs, it obviously did. Um, I was also listening to Nikita Kucherov's um, exit uh, interview with the media says he didn't learn anything from his suspension in game three, which kind of makes me want to question his character a little bit. But I think Tampa Bay has what it didn't have before. And that's the feeling of getting embarrassed. They know what it's like to take your foot off the gas and absolutely eat it in the playoffs. They didn't know that feeling before this series. They feel that pain of losing. Now they're going to be feeling it for most of this summer. So if I'm Julian Breezeball, maybe I don't alter the core dramatically as some are suggesting. I mean, look at the Red Wings in the mid-90s 
when it was when when their core was taking a lot of heat you know they couldn't even get to the conference finals or oh they couldn't make it to the finals or oh they couldn't win the cup and then they won it all in 1997 with pretty much the same core that they had to begin with and they built a dynasty off of that the edmonton oilers with rain gretzky in the early 80s had a serious game three collapse against the Kings where they were up five, nothing after two periods. They blow that lead, lose in overtime, lose the series. And a few years later with most of that core, they build themselves an 80s dynasty. So you can add grit or you can, you know, say goodbye to some aging UFAs. But I think the majority of this core needs to learn from losing before they can win. And... Now that they're going to be feeling it for a couple of months, now that they're a part of history that they don't want to be a part of, maybe keeping them around and giving them one more shot next year is what Julian Breesbaugh needs to do. Yeah, the, yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll talk about this in a second with uh, Steve Yeiserman now joining the, the Red Wings. But Breesbaugh, this is the time for Breesbaugh to, um, you know, uh, see what he's made of in, in in that sense. So we'll see what he does in the off season. Um, the Penguins are our last team that we're going to talk about here. Um, yeah, this was also one of those things where they're kind of in good shape um, in terms of like keeping guys, but at the same time, they're not really. Um, you know, because Malkin, Crosby, and Kessel are on the other, the bad side of 30. Um, the, you know, you also have Patrick Hornquist as well, who's decent. But then you have, like, guys like Nick Bukestad, um, who didn't really show up. Jared McCann, Brian Rust. Um, Zach Aston Reese has been, has some potential. Uh, Dominic Simone. Um, and then on the defensive side of things, you have Erica Branson for a couple of years, Jack Johnson for a couple of years. Um, you know, you know Oli Mata is decent, but he always gets injured. Same with Justin Schultz. So, like, I feel like the defensive side of things for the Penguins are needs to be what's fixed here um, for the Penguins. Um, like you have two generational talents in Malkin and Crosby, but it, and then you, of course you have Kessel, who's who's very good as well. I mean Chris Letang, um, and Matt Murray has has shown that he's one of the best young goalies in the league. But then other than that, like I'm just looking at this roster and I'm like, it's just gross basically. Oh, and Jake Gensel is the other one, but like other than those six players that I mentioned. I'm I'm not really sure what you do here because um, I feel like they're de- like that's their biggest issue is their defensemen and their depth forwards and I'm not really sure how you um, how you combat that yet really yeah and I think the biggest thing to take away from their first round exit was momentum swings and how they really didn't handle it all that well. Um, you mentioned that uh, the Penguins only scored one goal in games two, three, and four. Well, in games two, three, and four, the Penguins scored first. Yeah. And the Islanders were really good at getting it back, then getting the lead and not giving it up. And 
when you struggle to maintain momentum in the series, that's not a very good sign moving forward. Um, Matt Murray got a duel by Robin Leonard, but like the Rene versus Bishop matchup, it wasn't because that Matt Murray was particularly bad. It's just the guy at the other end was better. And um, you, you look at um, Gino and Sid and Kessel and Gensel, they combined for 42 shots in the series. When you look at Dallas's top three of Radulov, Ben, and Sagan, they combined for more shots. Uh, Latang had 14 on his own, but only got a single point. Crosby almost went pointless until he found the score sheet in game four. And nobody on the Penguins roster had more than one goal in these playoffs. So um, it, it definitely makes you wonder if we're seeing the end of an empire here in Pittsburgh, uh, where you're, it's like the Blackhawks after getting swept in four straight uh, by the Predators a couple of seasons ago, where they only scored three goals in four games. Uh, we could be seeing the decline of what was a big time force in the NHL. And um, it's not it's not because that, um, you know, Sidney Crosby doesn't have what it takes anymore. He got 100 points. Yeah. Like, he, he has plenty in the tank. But yeah. I think we're getting to the point where if the Penguins want to stay relevant, they need to make some moves elsewhere. And Jim Rutherford still believes the window to win is there, but not with the current roster. Uh, so with that being said, you better get ready for some offseason changes and don't be surprised if we see a big move or two because you have Jake Gensel's new deal at $6 million per year kicking in July 1st. Crosby, Gino, Hornquist, Kessel all have at least four years on their current deals. The lowest AAV cap hit of that bunch is Hornquist at $5.3 million, which is pretty, pretty lofty. Uh, on the back end, Dumoulin, four years, Mata, three, Gabranson, two, all have a cap at just over $4 million. Um, Latang is a UFA in three years. Schultz, UFA after next year. And after next year, don't look now, but Matt Murray is going to have to get paid as an RFA. So yeah. um, their cap situation isn't going to get that much better as, as we move into next year and the year after that. Um, and then you look at their draft situation and it's not that good either because they don't have a second, they don't have a third, they don't have their own fourth, and they don't have a sixth round pick in June's draft, and they don't have a second next year. So with the need of assets in the short term and the long term to help this team, I think the toughest decision of the bunch, but I think the decision they have no choice but to make is trading Phil Kessel. Yeah, he has at least 70 points in his last three years, 10 game winners this year. He's going to get a massive haul for them, and there's going to be a lot of teams lining up to get his services. So um, I, I I was hesitant to suggest that last year because I thought I'd give them one year, uh, give them another chance, see what they can do. But after getting swept by the Islanders, I think now's the time. Yeah, that was the rumor last year, that, like, but I think – I think you're right. Maybe it is time to trade Phil Kessel. But I feel like it's more just because Rutherford signed guys like um, Jack Johnson. Uh, he he traded for Good Branson. Yeah. He got Bukestad. Like, it's all Rutherford's fault. Like, he could have yeah, kept... It's, it's not because you know, that Phil Kessel is a bad player that he's oh, getting no. traded. It's because of the cap hit. Exactly. And, it's, and it's, it's because of those three guys in particular where you're like... 
they're being paid way too much for something that they're not really good at, at all if they yeah. were ever were so it's it's um yeah um it's a it's a tricky situation for the penguins there um yeah game sevens we have three of them here uh two of them are gonna happen after we watch after this comes out so uh you'll know the results of these two games but um we can still preview them and get our predictions here uh the bruins leafs um this is gonna be the third time uh since 2013 that the bruins leafs have had two game sevens uh second consecutive uh game sevens as well um this is one of those things where i'm very superstitious um and I just know that, like, and, like, just being a Red Sox fan, I just know that it's going to, like, eventually the Leafs are going to win. I feel like they're just, they, they're just bound to win um, one of these games, and I feel like this is going to be the season, this is going to be the year that they're going to do it, because just throughout this entire series, it seems like the Leafs have, um, have won or have been the better team, but... Uh, the Bruins were able to uh, win three of those games, but it's just um, you know you never know with these Leafs because it's like it's kind of like uh, what the Capitals were to the Penguins a couple of years ago before they they won with like you know this was kind of like their Goliath and um, I feel like the Leafs this may be the time for the Leafs. I, I'm a pessimistic Bruins fan right now, but um, I feel like um, this may be the time where the Leafs actually win. I feel like they're they're stepping it up and they're playing defense better than they have beforehand. And um, I, think, I think this is their time where they're actually going to win uh, this time around. Yeah, this is either going to happen one of two ways. It's either going to be Washington Pittsburgh where Toronto finally finds a way to defeat Boston or it's going to be Ottawa Toronto from the mid 90s mid to late 90s to the early 2000s where no matter how good Ottawa was they could never beat Toronto yep um but the more time goes by the more worried I'm getting about your team Brad because Mitch Marner looked really solid in the first three games it looked like he bought in on the defensive side as well uh Austin Matthews has five goals in this series. He's looked really good the past three to four games. Andreas Johnson, William Nylander both have had their respective moments as well. Freddie Anderson has looked calm and composed the entire series, been a lot more consistent with his game when compared to his play in round one of last class. And the one thing that the Leafs did have in the situation last year, at least as much as they do this year, is preparation, belief, and hunger. Jake Muzzin has been a part of some teams that ought to win games. He's become himself. He knows what it takes. He knows what it expects. And I don't think the big moment, the bright lights, are going to phase the Leafs this time. That being said, it's Toronto. I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, choked. But I think they could do this. I think they could actually beat the Boston Bruins. And I think the key to doing that is holding the Bruins to a goal or less within the first 20 minutes. Because they didn't do that in game two, they didn't do that in game four, they didn't do that in game six, and in all three of those games, they lost. So the start, the finish needs to be there for the Maple Leafs, but if it's there, 
Um, I think the Bruins are done. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I I will say though uh, that there was an obvious goaltending interference um, in the one goal that the Leafs had in Game Six, um, where it was Game Five. You're talking about Game Five, it was in yeah. Boston, I believe, right? No, I thought yeah. it was, wasn't it the last game. I, uh, well, no, it was it was game five because the Leafs won that game, right? It was in Boston, right? No, I'm talking about the one uh, that happened last last game where the Bruins won. I thought it was game five, not in game six where Boston won. No, I'm talking about the I'm one that in game six. I mean, just... I'm pretty sure it was significant because I think the game that where it was called Boston lost. I could no, be wrong. No, no. I thought it was game five. I thought it was game five when Hyman bumped into Rask. Yeah, that's the one I'm referring to, but I believe that was game six. Um... And, well, see, because I'm pretty sure it was so talked about because the Bruins had lost that game, but the Bruins won game six. So I oh, thought it was yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay, yeah, no, that's <laughs> right, because game six we did win. Game yeah. five, yeah, that, that was ridiculous because, like, they, they didn't call it a goaltending interference, um, even though, like, Hyman, like, pushed McAvoy into uh, Rask. And I thought that was, like, Milbury was acting like it was going to be a goaltending interference. Um, it, like, you know, just on replay, it looked like it was going to happen. And then they just didn't call it. So that felt crazy. And then, um, I mean, I guess it was a little too late, but... Um, I guess the Bruins also got away with an offsides call uh, later that the only goal that they scored in the game um, that should have been called off. So, but you know, it was uh, that was ridiculous. So the refs were horrible in that one. Uh, well, what, yeah. Here, here's here's the thing I take exception to in that call. Okay, because in Game Five of Flames Abs. The Flames player pushes the Avs player into Grubauer. A few seconds later, the oh, yeah. Flames score. That's ruled no goal. It stands after review. So, all I'm asking for is consistency. If you're gonna call it one way, call it the same yeah. way in a different in a different series. Call it the same way in a different series if it's the exact same play. It it sounds like two similar calls, similar-ish calls, but the result is different. Yeah. Like, if you're going to call something one way, you better call it the same way the next time it happens. Yep. All I ask for is consistency. Same. Yep. Uh, Sharks, Golden Knights. Um, this has been one of those series that, like, it feels like the Golden Knights have just been the better team on all the, all the nights. Um, on all the nights. That was unintentional. Uh, but on... on on every game so far, um, including game six, where the Knights, uh, where like Martin Jones saved 59 or something around that, you know, he had like 59 saves or something like that. And like uh, Mark Andre Fleury had like 21 saves. Um, and then it was over in second overtime with uh, Tomas Hurdle scores a shorthanded goal of all things. Yeah, the only so, shot of the period for the Sharks. And the only, so that was one of those things where Martin Jones saved, like, uh, saved 
the Sharks from elimination, and he stole the game, basically. Um, I feel like the Golden Knights, it's not going to happen this time around. Uh, although the Golden Knights do have, don't have home ice advantage here. Um, but I feel like the Golden Knights just have been the better team this entire series. So, um, just basing it off of that, same way as I'm doing with the Bruins Leafs, I, just basing it off of the last six games, I feel like the Knights are going to win just because of that. So, yeah. Yeah, it should also be noted, by the way, every single series the Knights have won, they clinched on the road and... One of the series they did that was in San Jose. So they've already clinched a series in San Jose before this one. So yep. I don't think they're particularly phased about uh, a game in San Jose, um, winner go home type scenario. I don't think they're phased about it at all, uh, especially with the way Stone Patches and Stassi have been playing. They've been killing it for the Golden Knights. Um, I thought the series was all but over in game six when Thomas Hurdle unintentionally might have jinxed his team because like it, it was one thing if if Thomas Hurdle would have said you know it, it you know it was a big win by us and we needed that win I have faith in our team I believe we can come back and win this he just basically went out and say I believe we can win because I believe our team is better than them that's yep. bulletin board material that the other team can twist around and inject themselves before the game and they probably remembered those words loud and clear because in the first period, second period, third period, overtime one, overtime two, they swarmed the Sharks' net. And they probably should have won that game if not for Martin Jones and his and Thomas Hurdle. superhuman heroics. Like, Martin Jones is the only reason why we're talking about this game seven right now. And Thomas uh, and Tomas Hurdle as well. He forgot about yeah, that. I'll give credit to Hurdle. He you backed, know, it, backed up. it up by scoring, yep. by scoring the winner. You're right. You no, know, full credit to him. Um, but again, it goes back to which Martin Jones are we going to see? Are we going to see the big time Martin Jones that showed up in game five and game six? Or are we going to see the one that gets chased in the crease after 20 minutes? Right. And I think we're going to see a Patrick Aleem style outing in 2004 where he just lays an egg. And I'm expecting that scenario. I think Vegas is probably going to. Oh, are you? Can I hear? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm done. Yeah, Vegas around two is my prediction. I, 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 it's just Martin Jones has been just so inconsistent. I know he's fully capable of playing out of his mind and being an X factor for the Sharks team, but just at home, the Vegas Golden Knights have have had this, sh- uh, or on the road rather, the Vegas Golden Knights have had San Jose's number, and they've been able to run up the yeah. score in Martin Jones. It doesn't matter which building they play in. Yeah, this is kind of like the same thing with the Leafs and the Bruins, where I feel like the Knights are the better team, and they probably will win, But even though I like the other team more. Um, so yeah. I, I do love the Sharks, but I feel like the Knights are the better team, and they probably will win. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's go to the Caps and the Canes here. Um, this one, uh, they're not going to have TJ Yoshi. Um, the Caps aren't. And, uh, he has a fractured collarbone. He's out indefinitely. Um, and the Canes aren't going to get uh, Shvezhnikov. He has a concussion. I think we announced that last week. 
but um, that's another one. So they both don't have an injury. They both have an injury um, on both sides here, but it's been kind of even, surprisingly, this entire time. Um, I'm not really sure where this is going to go, honestly. I think I would give the edge to the Capitals, um, but at the same time, the Hurricanes have been able to surprise, and I think they could uh, figure this out and they could win this game. This is the truly the biggest toss-up of these three Game 7s that we're, about, we're going to watch um, because I could see it. I could really see it, like on both sides. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say the Capitals, um, I think, but we'll see. Well, uh, honestly, what a crazy first round this has turned out to be. And what a crazy round it could be if the Carolina Hurricanes actually get this done. And I can totally see a way Carolina can get it done. Like, as you mentioned, the Caps don't have Oshie. They don't have Michael Kempney for the entire playoffs as well. That's a depth defenseman that could have really helped the Capitals in this situation. Um, if if the Canes want to win this game, though, it it it's going to factor in a lot of things. Mister Game Seven is going to have to be Mister Game Seven. I'm not going to bet on Justin. I'm not going to bet against Justin Williams any day of the week, especially in Game Sevens. He's absolutely clutch in those scenarios when he really seems to play his best hockey. I think the Caps at the same time, they cannot give the Caps a sniff of offense. We saw how swarmed Washington was in game four. The Canes dominated them. Washington didn't really get a chance to get themselves into the game. Um, When they were able to put the pressure on Carolina in game five, they didn't look back. Uh, They won six to nothing. But they were able to play their game at home ice. And home ice is also a factor because the home team has won every single game of this series. And the old saying, you're not in trouble until you lose one at home, I think this could be the one where the home team loses. And I think in order for that to happen, like I said, the Hurricanes really need to play a very disciplined game. The Caps have averaged 25.5 shots on goal per game through six games. But still have been able to score 17 goals in this series and they've been really conservative with their opportunities they've been able to take advantage of the opportunities that they have had in the series and um i think peter morassic's gonna have to play his best game in the series everyone on carolina is gonna have to raise their game a lot has to go right for the hurricanes but it would not surprise me if they're able to upset washington in game seven yeah. so if I had to decide a winner, my heart, my mind says Caps, my heart says Hurricanes. Just because this is the most unpredictable playoffs I can recall, I want to see the most whacked up Final Eight yep. of my lifetime. And it would definitely be that if the Canes managed to pull off the upset. Right, especially since all the division leaders are out and all the wild cards won. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I guess from that logic, you, I mean, you did pick the Leafs, you did pick the Knights, that would be the, and then the Kings, so that would be the biggest one. Yeah, I, I, I got, it's it's the same thing, I guess, for all the other ones, that I, I, like, yeah, you said it perfectly. My mind says the Caps, but my heart says the Kings, um, you know, 
so it, it, it's tough to uh, you know I'm rooting for the, I'll be rooting for the Canes but I I don't I think just it just makes sense that if the Caps win this thing but um, they've the Canes have been playing well too so um, it's tough to really say that uh, let's go to the rapid fire here um, Steve Yeiserman is the uh, the is the GM of the Red Wings. It's now officially. Uh, this was the worst kept secret in all of hockey, um, and now it's. I called it. I called it the day he resigned. Well, I mean, everyone did. It's not like you weren't special because <laughs> of that. Uh, even <laughs> yeah, Bobby Kenzie. I, guess, I other... guess a lot of people yeah. uh, chimed in on it as well. I mean, you wouldn't leave a cushy job like the one you had in Tampa Bay, unless it was for the perfect scenario. And returning home, a.k.a. Detroit, yep. seemed like the only rational option for Eisenman to leave Tampa. Right. Um, yeah, it, the the Red Wings actually played, uh, like, low-key, they played really well towards the end of the season. Um, mm-hmm. And th- that was back when they, like, they, they weren't making the playoffs, but they were giving teams actual... Um, you know, competition during that time. So they weren't like a cakewalk towards the end of that time. So now I'm curious to see what Yeiserman does with this because he was he was able to build up this Lightning team up, um, and now you know he he gets to do the same thing for his Red Wings. Um, it was funny too because he was signed on April 19th. Um, which is the number he wore for the Red Wings was yep. 19. Um, and uh, so that kind of makes it a little bit special too. So um, yeah, it's um, it's a good thing that he will see what he does when he comes home. I generally don't love when like former players are like management of their former teams, but for Yeiserman, it's a little bit different just because he was, you know, we know what he's capable of um, in Tampa. So now it's like we know that he's a competent guy um, in, in in Detroit. So we'll see um, what his big moves are um, in the offseason. Um, and then the other news, um, I, unless you have other things to say about this. Yeah, I, I, I do have a couple of things on, on the Eisman front. Uh, it should also be noted uh, that uh, Kenny Holland who is now the team's senior vice president uh, after serving as GM for two plus decades, executive vice president, as well as general manager on his resume. Ken Holland actually encouraged Red Wings management to get this done. Um, he he really um, was adamant that Eisenman would be the next general manager of the Red Wings. So that says a lot about uh, Ken, what that person is professional like uh, and, and you know what it really be welcome to you know outside support instead of trusting your inner sources like what what Eisman was able to do in Tampa in the nine years that he was there is incredible um like he he was able to turn a a team that was an eastern conference butt joke to a legit contender every single year a threat to win the cup and he did three things really, really well. Draft and develop players, make good trade. And once you have those first two, you're gonna start winning. And 
And I think making good trades is the one thing that Detroit needs to do in order to be successful again. They've done a decent job of drafting and developing players already. Eisenman's definitely going to help with that. Um, and I think this move, again, changes the landscape of the Atlantic, and it's going to make the division even tougher to compete against because Florida hopefully maybe gets a bit more competent with the hiring of Coach Q. Um, the Red Wings, in theory, do the same with the hiring of Steve Eisman. You obviously have Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Boston in the mix. So teams like Ottawa, Buffalo, Montreal, it's going to be tougher for them to compete in a division that just continues to get better in the front office department. Um, as far as immediate tasks for Steve Eisman, I think the Red Wings need to find themselves a quality goaltender, a quality good young goaltender. Uh, they have Harry Satiri, they have Caden Fulcher in the system. Maybe one of them turns out to be that guy. But I think that Tatum of Bernier and Howard will only give this team two to three more years, in my opinion. They'll need better options in free agency or in their own system. And I think it's beneficial for the Red Wings to find a young goalie regardless. Yep. Um, I also think guys like Mantha, guys like Athanasiu, guys like Larkin will need to continue to elevate their game a new level every year. And if Flashel can't do that in the next year or so, Stevie Y needs to find someone who can. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to take some time. But I think Detroit is on the line again. Yeah. Um, I mean, and don't forget Philip Zadina as well. Yeah, um, yeah. They also have guys like Philip Zadina waiting. Yep. Um, Todd McClellan um, is the head coach of the Los Angeles Kings. Um, I kind of had forgotten that he was on the market, um, I guess, because he was fired this year. Um, but, um, yeah, so this should be an interesting thing, especially since he was... He, he was the former coach of the Oilers and the Sharks, and both of those teams are going to be in his division again. Um, and he's also, and speaking of which, because that was the famous, you know, in 2012, he was the Sharks head coach at the time when the Kings reverse swept them, and now McClellan is the Kings uh, coach um, a couple years later. Kind of reminds me of when Lindy Ruff was the Dallas Stars head coach. And uh, Lindy Ruff was the Sabres coach in 99 when they lost that uh, Stanley Cup final game. Um, so it's like they get the losing head coach here. Uh, but at the same time, you know, McClellan's a pretty good coach. And I, I don't think there's a ton of coaches out there in the market now that Quenville is out. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think this is a good good hire for the Kings. Um, we'll see how it goes, though. Um, it's unclear how... Um, if he'll be able to um, manage, but um, yeah, I think it is, it's a good hire. Yeah, according to Cap Friendly, it doesn't have um, an average annual value for his contract right now, but it says it's for five years, which oh. is interesting. Um, the unfortunate news for McClellan, uh, he's got a lot of issues to deal with on this roster. Uh, some of which are similar to the issues that he faced with his old roster in Edmonton. Uh, the depth in Los Angeles is a concern. Surprise, surprise. Same with Edmonton. Is there enough of it? Is it good enough for them to become a playoff team again? Um, they have questions on defense, except those questions have nothing to do with inexperience. It's whether or not the defense in front of 
Todd McClellan is getting too old. Guys like Dion Phaneuf, guys like Drew Doughty, guys like Alec Martinez nearing the prime of their careers. And Edmonton, as far as their core, it's it's all right. Los Angeles, different story. It's far from fine. In fact, as we mentioned many times on the show, that core is aging and it's aging quickly. We've seen we've seen quite a few signs of it already. Um, so maybe maybe they return to relevancy in the next year or two or three, and maybe he'll get away with it in the next year or so. But I'm worried about when you get to year four or year five of McClellan's contract, how how much their age is really going to start to show. I think this team by then could be in pretty rough shape. And I think that's when he's going to have nothing but gray hair on his head. And I think probably by then, Jonathan Quick's going to either be irrelevant or traded out of town because uh, we all know what he's capable of. But um, once Jonathan Quick is out of the picture, it's either going to be Jack Campbell Cal Peterson, hopefully, if he makes the big jump and he's shown signs of doing that, or someone else they get on the open market or they draft. Um, and I think by then, I think this could be another case before his contract's up where McClellan is looking for another job. Yep. Not because he's a bad coach, but his team is going to have a lot of flaws that are going to pop up, flaws that are already existent. Yeah, I mean they're already an old core already, so I could, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens again. But um, yeah, we'll see. I think he's in better shape. I mean the Kings are in a better shape than the Oilers are, though. So, so yeah, that. well at least they know what it takes to win. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they know that what too. it takes to make the playoffs and go far anyway. Well, right, that too. But I feel like you know they have a better def- like they have Drew Doughty, which is way better than. Like all their Oilers, you know, so, um, so that's the, that's the thing there. Um, and, and also they have Jonathan Quick as well so that he can, he has the ability to steal some games when he, when he really wants to. Uh, we talked about Edmonton, Edmonton needs patience, but in LA they need time and they're running out of it every year. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like the Kings are still in better. I would rather be the head coach of the yeah. Kings than the Oilers. Is my is my point. Probably, um, yeah. We talked about all these different injuries. T.J. Oshie's out with a fractured collarbone. Svechnikov has a concussion. Boychuk has a lower body injury, as you mentioned. Um, that's it in terms of injuries. Um, but we already talked about that. So let's go to the 67s and Bruins. Um, I don't really have a ton of thoughts that I already didn't mention. I hope the Bruins win, but I'm pessimistic right now. Uh, they're not playing as well. Um, so let's go to Ottawa for your 67s because it will give you some hope. You still have Yeah, hope. They're, gi- they're giving me plenty of hope. They're making me forget about the NHL team that we have in here in Ottawa. I'll yep. tell you that. Um, their Eastern Conference series with Oshawa already game three, uh, already three games old rather, and one game away from possibly being over because surprise, surprise, the 67s are up three to nothing again, oh. like they were in round one, like they were in round two. Um, just a little bit of a game by game breakdown. Uh, game one, the Generals were up four to two after 40 minutes, one of the few times in these playoffs that the Barber Bulls have been behind after two periods. And in vintage 67's fashion, they get four unanswered goals in the third period and take the opener six to four. Fast forward to game two, where Oshawa ties it up at three in the first minute or so of period three. 67's challenge, call stands, 
3-3 tie. Ottawa's not phased. They get four straight goals. Chase Kyle Kaiser from the net. They win game two, 7-2-3. And then game three rolls around on Easter Sunday, and Oshawa gets flat out dominated. 67s win that game 5-1 and take a 3-0 stranglehold into Wednesday night uh, where they'll hopefully look to finish off the series there. Um, honestly, just a complete effort to get up there, make it look absolutely effortless out there. I'm at, honestly at the point where if I'm on the Twitter machine and I check their profile and I see a tweet from them in-game, I expect that tweet to be, we scored a goal. <laughs> it, it, it's just unbelievable just just how clockwork this team is like they're just they're just amazing me i haven't seen it the junior hockey team in ottawa this good in an awfully long time probably my lifetime frankly and they're one game away from clinching their first trip to the ohl finals since 2005 um which they ended up losing in five games to the london knights in their defense the london knights were back then the best junior hockey team ever assembled and probably still are to this date so um it goes without saying ottawa's going to be going up against a very good opponent in the finals assuming they make it there they still have to take care of some business they still need to win one more game but if they get to the finals they're either going to get one of guelph or saginaw they're going to be a very battle-tested team they're going to give ottawa a very good run for their money but i have total confidence that the 67 scheme uh, the 67 team can do absolutely anything They've got the city behind them, a city that's been looking for meaningful hockey since the Sens playoff run in 2017. The city is enjoying it. The players are too. The attendance is starting to reflect that. It's a really special time in Ottawa, and I just want it to keep on going. Okay. Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll root go 67s here. Yeah. Um, hopefully, hopefully by the time you hear this podcast, they'll have already clinched. Yeah. Um, uh, hopefully both our teams have, uh, clinched. Um, we'll see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I do like what I've been seeing of the Bruins. Um, but at the same, you know, like Pasternak stepped it up. Um, so has Marshawn and Bergeron, but, um, it's now it's just, you know, the Leafs have also been a pretty good team as well. So it's, it could go either way for me in, in game seven, and I'm I'm not sure who's going to win. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, uh, that's it for now, um, where you can catch us on SoundCloud and uh, Spotify. Um, I lace them up. Uh, that's probably how you're listening to us. We're also on iTunes. Um, our Facebook is Lace Em Up. Our Twitter is Lace Up Podcast. Um, you can also email us at laceupbag at gmail.com. And that's about it. Um, I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again in episode 169 of the Lace Em Up Podcast. <laughs>